Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. So as you can see, like I mentioned, uh, we're looking at the church in Philadelphia this morning. Before we get into that and start looking that in depth, um, I just want to remind you of a couple things as I've been trying to do that, kind of drilling into your brain as we go. But one thing I want to encourage you as you're reading the book of Revelation, that there's a blessing for you. You're going to be blessed this morning, not because I'm sharing, but you're going to be blessed because of what the Lord wants to do in your life. And so Revelation 1 verse 3, it says, blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things written in it for the time is near. And so there's a blessing for us uh, to read the book of Revelation, uh, to study it, to understand it, to keep it. In other words, to apply it and, and make it, own it as far as ourselves. And so there's a blessing for us in that. What I also wanted to remind everybody is that Jesus provides an outline for the book of Revelation in chapter 1, verse 19. He says, tells John, write the things which you have seen. What did he see? He saw the vision of Jesus Christ, the resurrected Jesus Christ in his glory in chapter 1. And then he says, write the things which are. And that's what we're looking at this morning, the letters uh, to the seven churches. It's chapters 2 and 3, basically. And then chapters 4, write the things which take place after this. That's chapters 4 through the rest of the book of Revelation. The things that take place after what? After the letters to the churches of, of Revelation, after the church age. And so that's basically how you can split up uh, Revelation. We don't have to kind of figure it out. Jesus gave us the outline to the book. And so right now we're still dealing with that middle portion, right? The things which are. And up till now, we've looked at five of the seven letters to the seven churches. We have two more uh, churches to look at, the last two, Philadelphia and Laodicea. We're going to look at Philadelphia this morning. And, uh, <clears throat> and so why don't we go ahead and read it together. Revelation 3, verses 7 through 13. It says, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things, says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. One of the things that's interesting about the seven letters to the seven churches is that there are seven sections of the seven letters to the seven churches and uh, we've been going through that the very first thing is a salutation or an address uh, to the angel of the church of and in this case to the angel of the church in philadelphia 
Now, that's not Pennsylvania, by the way, um, although they probably would like to. The churches in, in Philadelphia, I'm sure Calvary Chapel Philadelphia wants to think, we're the Church of Philadelphia. Well, I think every church wants to be the Church of Philadelphia, don't we? I mean, I, I want. <laughs> what about Philadelphia? It's in modern-day Turkey. It was built by a name uh, by a man by the name of King uh, a king by the name of Pergamus. Excuse me, no, that's not true. <laughs> He's the king of Pergamus. <laughs> there we go. Um, and his name was Attalus II. And he had a brother named Eumenes, uh, and he had a great love for his brother. He built this city in honor of his great love for his brother. And uh, Attalus had a nickname called his nickname was Philadelphus, and that's where we get the name Philadelphia, which you probably know it means brotherly love. Well, what about the city of Philadelphia? We know that it was very wealthy. In fact, in verse 8, Jesus talks about an open door. And Philadelphia, where it was located in, in that region of what is now modern-day Turkey, it was located on some hills at the edge of a really long, great big valley. And there was a trade route or a trade road that led from Smyrna on the coast of the Mediterranean uh, through Philadelphia into this great valley. That road went from beyond Philadelphia, it went into Phrygia and further on into the east. It was a rival road to there was another road that was a trade route that went from Ephesus to the east. This rivaled that road. In fact, this road was the greatest Asian trade route of, of medieval times. And uh, in a real sense, Philadelphia, you know, you're traveling from the coast, you get to Philadelphia, it really was an open door to the east. That's the way they considered it. Um, it was also known as Little Athens. And uh, one of the things that uh, the Roman Empire did, it was built basically as a missionary city for the Greek language, the Greek way of life, and the Greek civilization. Beyond that was Phrygia, and the people beyond that, uh, the Greeks called anyone they didn't speak Greek barbarians. That's where we get the word bar. They, they say it's barbar. They speak barbar. It's like they're, they're, they're muffled, their language, whatever. You can't understand. And so beyond Philadelphia was the barbarous region or barbarous region of Phrygia in the east. And so um, Ath or, excuse me, Philadelphia was basically, it was a missionary city trying to spread uh, the Greek language, Greek culture, and Greek way of life. Not only that, but it was a very wealthy city. And so, uh, if, it, if you know, considering the fact it was a wealthy city, um, it had Greek culture, little Athens, it also was well known for its grapevines. It had fertile uh, land for grapes, and as a result, Dionysus, um, or Bacchus, as some people know him, was worshipped. <laughs> Uh, one of the Greek Greek gods of the Greek pantheon was Bacchus. And so he was worshipped. And the worship of Bacchus was basically a party time, you know. Uh, you basically drank and had a good time. It was a very hedonistic city. It was probably always spring break in Philadelphia. I mean, hey, the, the booze flowed, you know, it was a party time. Um, and so... We get the revelation here of Jesus to this letter, or excuse me, to this church, the revelation of Jesus, unique for each church. And what's interesting about this letter in particular is that in up till now, the first five letters, and in also only Odyssea, um, the, the, the revelation of Jesus, how he reveals himself to these <clears throat> churches, have all been based on the revelation that John saw in chapter 1. Philadelphia is a little bit different. It's interesting. It says, these things, says he who is holy, 
he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. And we're going to break that down and look at that. First of all, he who is holy. Now that's a recognized title of the Messiah as being consecrated, as being set apart. In other words, he in whom holiness basically dwells and all holiness is derived from him. It's also a title, holy and true is the same title for God the Father. So we know Jesus is God. He's revealing his deity there. But he's the Messiah, the set apart one. He who is true, and that word true, you can think of as being genuine. And not merely genuine as contrasted with something that's totally false. But also, he's... uh, the perfect realization of something that's subordinate. And it's kind of hard to explain, but let me give you an example. In uh, the Old Testament, or actually Jesus talks about it, that Moses gave the children of Israel manna, right? But Jesus said, but the Father gives Jesus the true bread. So the manna was given, but and that's a, that's a true thing, but Jesus is the true bread. Manna was just a representation, a, a partial realization of that truth. Israel, according to Psalm 80, verse 8, was a vine of God's planting. But in John, Jesus says he's the true vine. And so there's, he's genuine in the sense of not just as opposed to opposite, but he fulfills. He's the fulfillment, the ultimate truth. And because Jesus is holy in his nature, he can't be anything but true. Holiness and truthfulness go hand in hand. And because he is holy... He calls his people, you and I, to be holy as well. He calls us to a holy lifestyle. In fact, 1 Peter 1, verse 15 and 16, it says, but, he, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. So he's holy. He who is holy, he who is true. And then he says, he who has the key of David, who opens, he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. And that's actually a quote from the Old Testament going all the way back to Isaiah chapter 22 regarding a guy by the name of Shebna and Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah. They are mentioned in 2 Kings chapter 18 and Isaiah chapter 36, Shebna and Eliakim are. Who was Shebna? Shebna was a servant of King Hezekiah. King Hezekiah was a really a good king of Judah. Shebna was uh, not only a steward over the house, but he was also a scribe. Those were positions of honor and responsibility within the, you know, the kingdom, basically. And Shebna was basically one of King Hezekiah's chief assistants. However, in Isaiah chapter 22, Shebna is demoted from his position of authority uh, that he has. What was going on is Isaiah was prophesying. God had called him to prophesy about uh, that, that Judah, which was rebellious in Jerusalem, that they'd go into exile. And Shebna, evidently, by his actions, disbelieved the words of warning that Isaiah was, was told to say. And instead, he abused his position of authority, and he built for himself a sepulcher, which is basically a fancy tomb. It was carved out of a rock. Regarding sepulchers, only the very wealthy and the very powerful 
were able to carve out these things. It wasn't just the common person didn't have sepulchers. If you were wealthy or you were an influential person, that's what you did. And he also used Hezekiah's wealth to purchase fancy chariots for himself. So while Isaiah is prophesying this judgment that's coming upon Jerusalem and upon Judah, instead of leading, because leaders are supposed to lead, right? Instead of being a leader and being an example of humility and mourning at a time when judgment was approaching, Shebna was using his position to pridefully enrich himself. And God said, that's it, you're done. Shebna is a type of God's people who are focused on enriching themselves in this life rather than being focused on the kingdom of God. And there are people that are out there that are like that. It reminds me of the parable of the rich fool. It's a perfect illustration of this. In Luke chapter 12, and you can turn there if you want to follow along, Luke chapter 12, verses 16 to 21. Jesus was speaking and he says this, then he spoke a parable to them, saying, The ground of a, of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I'll do this. I'll pull down my barns and build greater. And there I will store all my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? Then he said this, So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And that's a picture, that's what Shebna was a picture of. He was enriching himself instead of being rich toward God. And the Lord sees what Shebna is doing in spite of God's coming judgment. And he tells Isaiah to demote Shebna and to give his position, Shebna's position, to Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was another one of Hezekiah's servants. And then in Isaiah chapter 22, uh, verses 21 through 24, the Lord is talking to Shebna with regard to Eliakim. And it says this, I will clothe him, speaking of Eliakim, with your robe and strengthen him with your belt. I will commit your responsibility into his hand. He shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, to the house of Judah. The key of the house of David I will lay on his shoulder, so he shall open and no one shall shut. And he shall shut and no one shall open. And that's where that phrase comes from. Isaiah 22, verse 22. But it continues in verse 23. I will fasten him as a peg in a secure place, and he will become a glorious throne to his father's house. They will hang on him all the glory of his father's house, the offspring and the posterity, all vessels of small quantity, from the cups to all the pitchers. And when we moved into our house that we're living in now, we downsized and we had a large kitchen in our old house. We had four kids, five-bedroom house. It was, you know, great for raising a family, entertaining. We got into a house that was small. 
and a small, even a smaller kitchen, and they had little cupboards and everything. And so we, you know, I felt really bad because we, you know, when you go to sell your house, you do all this stuff to make it really nice. You usually do it like a year before you sell it, right? You finally get to all those things you wanted to do, and then you finally do it, and then you sell it. And you see, you never really enjoy it. So we moved into this small house, and it's like, okay, I felt really bad because I picked it while Teresa was out of town. You know, she wasn't even there to look at it. And uh, long story, but anyways... Um, but we ended up upgrading the kitchen because I wanted to make it nice. It was small, but I wanted to make it nice. So we got new cabinets. And so we built up these new cabinets. It looks really nice in there, by the way. But in those days, they didn't have kitchen cupboards. They basically had stone walls and they had pegs in the walls. And so you would take these pegs, you would pound them into the wall, and that's what you would hang uh, your household things, like cups and pitchers and whatever. What It would be hanging securely on these pegs. And so Eliakim here is a type. What I mean by a type, he's a picture of the coming Messiah. And so to it says to the, uh, the key of the house of David, I will lay on his shoulder. What is that speaking of? That's speaking of authority. And we know of Jesus in Isaiah 9 verse 6. It says, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. That authority will be on upon his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And then he talks about the keys. I will give him the keys of David. Um, what are keys? Well, keys represent authority to access. I used to be, I spent about half of my career at this one corporation, little corporation down the road, um, uh, and I was in equipment maintenance about half of my career. And uh, in equipment maintenance, I had a ton of keys because I, I could get into just about any room, any compartment in the building that I worked on. Uh, I could get into anywhere. Now I'm a janitor. I don't work at that company anymore. I'm a janitor. Uh, I'd spent a little you know, part-time as a janitor. Again, I've got lots of keys. It's like that's been the story of my life. Um, it's funny. I go. I clean this building at night, and uh, sometimes there's, there's there's a number of women that work in this building. And I get into this back door, and it's at night. It's dark, you know. And the lights they tr shut off by themselves. I got these. You know, I come in there, I turn on the lights, and I know that there's still people there because there's cars in the parking lot. And so I'm walking around, and I've never scared any one of those ladies. Why? Because I said, I hear you coming. Because <laughs> I'm jangling. I got so many keys on my on my ring. I can't. I couldn't sneak up on anybody. But basically. I can get into any room in that building. In fact, I got more keys than those workers have. I got keys to everything. I've got master keys. And uh, so these keys, they represent great authority. So Jesus has this authority, and we'll see what he does with this authority. But Jesus is like that. We talked about that peg on the wall. Jesus is the peg fastened to the wall that is secure. He's holy, he's true. And if you depend on him, you're not going to stumble and you're not going to fall. But you're going to be held securely. So this description of Jesus is significant and unique. All of the descriptions, how Jesus reveals himself in these letters to these churches is unique to those churches. And this one is, is likewise significant and unique for the church of Philadelphia because Jesus was still the center of, of the church of Philadelphia. And as a, a result of that, you know, and they lived in a very hedonistic Greek culture, but they kept Jesus the center of their focus, center of their worship, 
and they remained set apart for God's kingdom. And so Christ now, Jesus speaks about his, his knowledge of their spiritual conditions, which he says is phrased to all the churches, I know your works. Jesus knows what's going on in, in all churches. He says, I know your works. Now, I mentioned, Jesus said this to each of the seven churches. Every single church, I know your works. The only difference with Philadelphia and with Smyrna, which we talked about earlier, there's no buts, no howevers, no nonetheless. There's nothing negative. In some of the other letters, Jesus I know your works. You're doing this and this and this, but I have this against you. He had nothing negative to say to Smyrna and nothing negative to say to Philadelphia. Why is that the case? And I think the answer is found in, in the Christ's message to the church in Philadelphia. He says, see, I have set before you an open door and no one can shut it. So Jesus has all this authority. The keys of the house of David is given to him. He has that authority and he opens doors that no one can shut and shuts that no one can open. And he has set before the church of Philadelphia an open door that no one can shut. Notice that he says, see. That word see is, is, can be translated, lo and behold. It's what it is, is it's to call attention to something external. It's to take, hey, check this out, basically, we'd say in our vernacular, right? Um, he says, see, I have set before you an open door. Oh, what, what's the open door that he's speaking about? I think Paul gives us a clue because he uses that phrase repeatedly. In 1 Corinthians 16, verse 9, Paul says this, For a great and effective door has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. In 2 Corinthians 2, verse 12, he says, Furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, and a door was opened to me by the Lord. In Colossians 4, verses 2 through 3, he's speaking, he says, Continually earnestly in prayer, uh, continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving, meanwhile praying also for us that God would open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am also in chains. So what's this door that Jesus is opening to the church in Philadelphia? The door was the opportunity for evangelism to share the gospel with a lost and dying world. And Philadelphia, like I mentioned before, it was considered a doorway to the barbarian east. It's kind of neat how these things kind of fit together. But about this door that Jesus says, hey, there's an open door. He says, I'm opening it and no one can shut it. Not even persecution. And they were persecuted. We'll see that in a little bit later. But they were persecuted. It's interesting when Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 9, he says, for a great and effective door has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. <laughs> it'd, almost, it'd almost be like you'd think he would say, a, a great and effective door has been opened to me, but, man, I've got lots of adversaries. But he doesn't say that. It's like, bring it on. You know, the Lord's opened this door. No one can shut it. Persecution can't shut that door. Not laws. There's going to be a day when you and I aren't going to be able to share our faith as openly. In fact, we're getting that way already now, right? There's certain things people get offended by. You start talking about the gospel and start talking about sin and stuff. Certain people don't want to hear that. But there's no law that can prevent us. There's no law that will shut the door for us 
to spread the word, spread the gospel. Company policies. Now, you know, uh, just to be, you know, if you're working for a company and they don't want you to spend eight hours a day proselytizing, right? They, they've paid you to do a job. You, you do a job, right? You're not going to violate your company policies. You don't want to be a bad witness. But in spite of the, or despite or in spite of that, I guess it would be, um, you can, there's still ways that you can share the gospel. The, there's no man can shut the door for you sharing the gospel. Not only that, but only God can shut the door. And once he does shut that door, no man can open it, no matter how hard you try. What, what I think about is Noah's Ark. Remember, the ark was, the door was open, and all the animals, and Noah and his sons and their wives, they could all come into the ark. In fact, anybody there that wanted to come to the ark could have came into the ark in faith. But once God shut that door, and Noah's sitting there inside the, the, the boat, and the water's starting to rise up, can you imagine how Noah felt? He's probably hearing the cries of the people. Open it up. Let us in. We're, we, we believe now. You know, let us in. God had shut the door. There's no one's going to open it, not even Noah. You know, the thing about doors, it means nothing if you don't go through the door. You guys remember Let's Make a Deal? Now, I know that there's a new version on, right? Or maybe it's the same show, but you remember Monty Hall? I mean, I was a kid who used to watch that all the time. You know, and, and, and he'd always have these doors, and you'd have these three doors. You know, you could choose what's behind door number one, where Carol Merrill is. Or you can choose, you know, door number two or door number three. And the lovely Carol Merrill will open up the door. You know, you'd had to pick a door. It, it didn't, nothing would matter until that door was opened. And for you and I, it means nothing to see an open door if you don't go through that door. It, 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 yeah, there's a door open, but if you don't take advantage of it, there's nothing, it doesn't mean anything. I think it's unique that this city is called Philadelphia. We know Philadelphia means brotherly love. And I think in, in, in light of evangelism, in light of sharing the gospel, do we love our brother and sister enough to share the gospel with them? And the believers in Philadelphia, they did. Or are we like Shebna, right? Shebna just enriching himself, just focused on himself not caring about what was going on around him. He was just caring about himself and his life, how he could make his life more comfortable. Jesus has nothing negative to say to this church. Now, does that mean that they were perfect? Probably not. You're shaking your head. No, I would agree with you. Probably not. Well, listen, they love people the way Jesus loved people. Philadelphia, brotherly love. They love people the way Jesus loved people. And the Bible says love covers a multitude of sins. So he tells them why he has set an open door before them. Look at verse 8. For you have little strength. That word is dunamis. We get the word dynamite or power. He says, for you have little strength. You know, he didn't say... At least you have a little strength. There's a difference there. You know, at least you have a little strength. So this door, you know, I'm opening up this door because you have a little strength. That's not what he's saying. It's, pre, pre, excuse me, it's precisely because they have little strength of their own that this door is open to them. Because now they are relying on God. They can't rely on themselves. I think about our church. This is a little church, right? We have little strength. Yet God has given us an open door as well. 
I can think of so many examples in the Bible where God has taken and used the most smallest, the most simple, the most, you know, you, you look at it from a worldly standpoint and go, I, I, don't, I don't get it. Remember Gideon? Remember he had to fight the multitude of Midianites, thousands and thousands of Midianites. They look like the sand on the seashore. And so Gideon's trying to get up all these soldiers of Israel to, to, to go up to fight. And God says, that's too many people. And then he whittles them down, and you can read the story, but basically in, in the book of Judges, but basically he whittles them down to 300 men against thousands of Midianites, and God gives them a tremendous victory. Think about King David. You know, when Saul was deposed, or was going to be deposed from the throne because of his sin, God told uh, the prophet to go and find go to the house of Jesse and that there he would he would tell him which which uh, uh, son of, of Jesse's would be the next king of, of Israel and so Samuel goes there and he's looking and, and, and Jesse brings out all you know he brings out his tallest guy this guy looks very kingly you know he's like six foot eight you know brings him out and brings back all, all these guys one by one the older to the younger and 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 Samuel's like, that guy looks like, he looks like he'd make a good king. And God says, nope, that ain't, it's not him. They get all the way through the, all, all the way through all the brothers. And then, and then Samuel's like, is that it? And they're like, well, there's, there's one more guy, but he's out in the field. He's, a, he's the run of the pack. You know, he's a little guy, David. We'll bring him in here. The youngest guy, the one that, that was the least likely to succeed. And that's who God chose to use to work through. The disciples themselves, I mean, they're fishermen, right? Fishermen, uh, zealots. They weren't lawyers. They weren't doctors. They weren't, they weren't politicians. They, they were basically simple men. In fact, Paul even says that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. He says Jesus chooses the weak and the foolish to confound the wise. And so it was because Philadelphia had little strength that God was able to use them. William Carey, he's, the, he's pretty much the father of the modern missionary movement. He said this, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. Why would you say that? Well, because that way God gets the glory, not us. See, if you do something that's like beyond yourself, it's like, I'm trusting you in this, Lord, I'm going to go for it, and it's beyond yourself. When it succeeds, you know you had nothing to do with it. Man, God, it was all God. It was not me. I can tell you that. You can't take any credit. So why did he have an open door set before him? Because they have little strength. They weren't relying on themselves. They had to rely on him. And you've kept my word. What does it mean to keep God's word? They guarded it. They held it fast. They held fast to the word of God and they had not departed from the faith. This is important because there's a lot of people today that are not keeping God's word. See, the church in Philadelphia, they didn't distort God's word. They didn't dilute God's word. They didn't add to God's word. They didn't allegorize God's word and they didn't ignore God's word. They honored God's word. They kept God's word. And he says, and you have not denied my name. Now, that was probably literally, right? They, they probably didn't, uh, didn't deny God's name in the face of persecution. They didn't deny being a Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ. 
But it wasn't just that. They didn't move, deny or move away from the nature of Jesus. Because the name of Jesus, it's really referring to not just the name of Jesus, but the nature, the character of Jesus. All that he is. All that he represents. And they didn't move away from the nature, the character of Jesus, not only in the face of persecution, but even in the face of a pagan culture, a pagan hedonistic culture. They didn't change. They continued to trust in the finished work of Christ on the cross as their Savior. They continued to honor him as Lord. They continued to believe uh, and obey his word. That's what not denying his name means. And then in verse 9, he says, Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. This is probably speaking about the unbelieving Jews because in just about in every city where the Christians were, there were unbelieving Jews that persecuted the believers just about everywhere they went. Everywhere Paul went, there were these Jews that would follow him around trying to drum up trouble for Paul. He says, they who say they are Jews and are not but lie. Does that mean they're not, they weren't Jewish people? They were imposters? I think it's what Paul mentions in Romans 2, verse 28 and 29. He says, for he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, And circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. And so Jesus says, I'm going to make them come down and worship before your feet to know that I have loved you. I've loved my church. And so now we have the promise of his coming. Verse 10. Because you have kept, and by by the way, that word kept means to guard from loss or injury. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I will also keep you, and again, that means to guard from loss or injury, I will also keep you from the hour of trial, which will come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. That's a very interesting verse. Notice that it has the definite article, the, the hour of trial. It's a specific period of testing he doesn't say i will keep you from trial because if jesus said that he would have lied right because down throughout the ages all christians every century every generation all christians have undergone trials and testing including the church in philadelphia no this is a particular specific hour of trial And this particular specific hour of trial is going to come upon the whole world. Not only is this a specific event, but it's an hour of trial. What does that mean? That means it's relatively short in duration. And it will be pervasive, widespread, or global. I like what the literal translation version says. Because you have kept the word of my patience... I will also keep you out of the hour of trial, which is going to come on all the, all the habitable world in order to try those dwelling on the earth. So what's this hour of trial, this specific event that is coming upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth? Well, it has different names in the Bible. It's also known as the Great Tribulation. It's the time of Jacob's trouble. 
the 70th week of Daniel. What do we know about this event? We know that it's going to be global. The entire world's going to be affected by it. It will be a specific trial, the hour of trial. And, you know, Christians have undergone trials and suffering in every generation. But, you know, those are spiritual. Those were satanic attacks. You know, God in his providence allows us to go through some of these trials. But this event is unique. This unique is this event is unique in that it is God is the author of the trial. It's when God pours out his wrath on a Christ rejecting world. And there's a big difference there. Well, we know it's going to be relatively brief. The Bible tells us it'll be seven years. And Jesus said in Matthew 24, verse 22, And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. And that can be kind of confusing because people will say, wait a minute. Does that mean that the church is going to go through this great tribulation? Because it talks about if those days hadn't been, sh- hadn't been shortened, the elect's sake uh, would, you know, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. Isn't the elect the church? And the answer is yes and no. Because throughout the Bible, sometimes the church is called the elect. That's true. But you'll also find sometimes the Jewish nation, the Jews themselves, are called the elect. And I think the elect in this context is the Jewish people that are going to be alive during the Great Tribulation. Well, that kind of leads us to another question. Where's the church going to be during the Great Tribulation? Remember, the Great Tribulation is when God pours out his wrath on a Christ-rejecting world. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. God's going to be pouring out his wrath on a Christ-rejecting world, but he's not going to be pouring out his wrath on you and I because he has saved us. We're not appointed to wrath. So this promise to keep the church of Philadelphia from the hour of trial, I personally believe, is speaking about the rapture of the church. And I'm not going to go into the teaching on the rapture of the church because I'm going to be looking, we'll be looking at it in really a lot closer in chapter 4 when we get to that chapter. But I think this verse strongly supports not only the rapture of the church, but a pre-tribulational rapture. And I know that there's people that have different beliefs, different eschatological, you know, they they think differently about these things. I want to just share a few things. You know, there are those who believe that church will go through the Great Tribulation. Note that this verse speaks of saving from trial, not saving through trial. Although in the Bible there is going to be a group of people who are going to be saved through the Great Tribulation, that's in chapter 7. When we get there, the 144,000 Jews that will be sealed. You might be thinking, wait a minute. Jesus is talking to the church in Philadelphia in the first century. This event, if, if it's as you say, the rapture of the church, it hasn't occurred yet. So why did Jesus tell them he was going to save them from this trial that hasn't even occurred yet? That's, that's not even, it's so many thousands of years future. One of the things that I've been stressing as I've been going through the letters of the churches of Revelation is that these churches, they not only represent, and I, and I kind of alluded to it last week, they represent church ages. You can actually correlate 
dates and stuff with these with these different letters, starting with um, Ephesus all the way to Laodicea. You can see dates in these churches. So they, they represent uh, periods of the church. They also represent different churches. There's churches that are like the church in Smyrna today. We've prayed for them this morning. The persecuted brothers that are being persecuted for their faith throughout the world. There's churches like the church of Ephesus, man. They, they've got great programs. They, they're, they're doctrinally pure, but, man, they, they've left their first love. They're no longer in fellowship with Jesus. It's all, it's all rules and regulations. There's no more love there. And there are churches like the Church of Philadelphia that are wanting to share the gospel with the lost and dying world. I mean, those churches, they're representative of churches that are around today. But I also say that these were written to a specific church. Each of these were actual churches that were in existence in the first century. And if you think about it, the specific church of Philadelphia that was in existence in the first century was kept from the Great Tribulation. In fact, churches down throughout the ages that were representative of the Church of Philadelphia, they all were kept from the Great Tribulation, just as Jesus said. So why would there now be one generation of believers that are representative of the Church of Philadelphia, and all of a sudden now they are the only ones that are not gonna, this is not going to be true for? Now, again, I, I understand that people have different views on, on eschatology. That's the study of last times and stuff. And uh, if you're having difficulty this morning accepting this position or maybe you have difficulty understanding it, I encourage you to come back for chapters 4 through 19. We're going to deal with it. I'll, I'll lay it all out scripturally as best I can as we get to it. Verse 10, Jesus says this, Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. And that's another one. As a kid, I was like, wait, wait, Jesus says he's coming back quickly. It's been 2,000 years and he hasn't come back yet. Well, in God's economy, <laughs> it's quickly, right? To him, a, th- a day is like 1,000 years, 1,000 years is as a day. So coming shortly is true in God's economy, not in man's, obviously. But quickly can also mean suddenly, at any moment. And I think this is what Jesus is saying. You see, there's no prophetic event that, that has to take place prior to the rapture of the church. It could have happened as easily in that first century when the church of Philadelphia was literally in existence as it can in the 21st century that we find ourselves living in. And so Christ's admonition to the church of Philadelphia is to be prepared for his sudden return. To hold fast to their little strength. Don't move away from that little strength. Don't move away from keeping his word. Don't move away from denying his name and his nature. And there's a good illustration of this in the parable of the ten virgins. It's in Matthew chapter 25. You can go ahead and turn there if you want and follow along. Or you can just listen if you'd like. Matthew 25 verse 1 says, Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now five of them were wise and five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight a cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming, go out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. 
But the wise answered, no, lest there not lest there should not be enough for us and you, but go rather to those who sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming." Jesus says he is coming quickly. And so we get to verse 12, the promise to the individual overcomer. That's another thing that's common in all the letters. Verse 12, he who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God and he shall go out no more. You know, very often the only ruins that are left from these ancient towns. If you go and you look at them, a lot of times the only thing that's left are these Roman columns. I've been to the Middle East. I've seen them before. Just, there's a column. There's a column. You know that something was there because there was a column there or a pillar. And I think that's what's being pictured here. Those who overcome will be standing when all else has fallen away because of their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. The other thing I want to point out, Philadelphia was not far from Sardis. And I mentioned last week that Sardis was devastated in an earthquake in 17 AD during the reign of Tiberius Caesar. And not being too far from Sardis, Philadelphia itself was also devastated in that same earthquake. And it was also rebuilt after that earthquake. In fact, that entire region is earthquake country. You know, I grew up in earthquake country. Lived there. We raised our family for a portion of it, anyways, in earthquake country. I lived in the San Francisco Bay Area, and in 1989, I don't know how many of you guys remember that. Maybe some of you weren't even born yet. But in 1989, there was that Loma, Loma Prieta earthquake. It happened at 5:04 p.m. right before the start of Game Three of the World Series. The Oakland A's and the San Francisco Giants. They called it the Battle of the Bay. Well, the Battle of the Bay. There really was a Battle of the Bay. Um, we actually lived less than 20 miles from the epicenter of that earthquake. It was 7.1, at least that's what we understood. I was looking at Googling it last night, and it said 6.9. I'm like, well, okay, whatever. But it was a big earthquake. Um, San Francisco was in the Bay Area, up by Oakland. They were the hardest hit by this earthquake. Um, we, even though we were closer to the epicenter, we were on bedrock. So we, you know, we, we went through it, but we weren't as devastated as the people in San Francisco were. And I remember, it's still clear in my mind. It was, like, like I said, 5.04 p.m. Uh, three of our kids, or two or three of our kids anyways, were watching cartoons in the living room. And uh, as soon as that earthquake hit, the two older ones that were in school already knew what to do. They dove under the coffee table Luke was two years old, and uh, he was just sitting on the couch with his mouth open looking at the ceiling. And that whole evening, he never said a word, never cried. Never, he was just like, it was like he was in shock. It was, it was, I still remember that. Brandy, our daughter, was six years old, and she was. we have two kids that are neat and two kids that are messy. 
Luke's one of the neat ones, by the way. I don't mean to keep bringing him up, but, but we had two messies. And, man, our daughter Brandy, she's one of the messies. And her room was, um, it looked like a hurricane came through there. So every once in a while, like, hey, Brandy, you got to clean your room. So I remember she had this bookcase, and she put all these books back on this bookcase and put all her dolls here and all her toys here. And that was right around in the evening. And then I said, okay, now you can go watch cartoons. Well, then that earthquake hit, and the way it hit, it shook our house. It hit our house, like, sideways. Everything in her room, it looked like, just like it was before she cleaned it up. I still <laughs> um, my wife was out in the front yard with a friend, and there were a couple kids out with her. I remember, she has some interesting memories from that. What was I doing during that time? I was unplugging a toilet. And uh, it was flushing slow, and uh, so... We couldn't figure out what was going on, and uh, after the earthquake, my dad and I, we finally, we had to take it off, because it was still, we flipped it upside, we could hear something in there, so we flipped it upside down, flipped it around, pretty soon, big bird came out of the neck of the toilet, (laughs) (laughs) and I'm not saying, Luke, but I think we know who might have done that. Well, anyways, I, you know, we had the toilet. I had the toilet off the off the thing, and I was walking to the garage to go get a tool. And that earthquake hit, and I literally fell to my knees in the hallway. And uh, our house it actually shifted off the, not completely off, but it shifted on the foundation. Um, the thing about that earthquake, there were twenty aftershocks. Twenty aftershocks that were magnitude four point zero or greater. And there were uh, more than 300 magnitude 2.5. Now, around four is when you start feeling it. And so there were 20 aftershocks that were four. Some of them were like in the five range. Some of them were were big. Um, And when that earthquake hit, for the first several hours, we and just about every every person in our neighborhood, we camped out in our front yard. Everybody was sitting in the front yards. Nobody wanted to go in their houses. We were worried about gas leaks. We were worried about more earthquakes, you know, more, more aftershocks. And so we camped out in the front yard, and I still remember this. There was this stray dog. Well, it wasn't a stray dog. It had a collar and stuff. I don't know who it belonged to. It came, and it literally it laid down right next to one of us. I don't know who it was, right on the, on the grass. And we'd never seen this dog before. It just And it wouldn't move. It stayed right because it was afraid, too, what was going on. And so we were camped out in, in our front yard. That evening... Every aftershock sent us running out of the house because we didn't know it's the big one. You know, maybe that was a foreshock. This is the big one. We didn't know. So every time there was an aftershock, we were running out of the house. We didn't feel safe and secure in our own home after that. Um, in fact, we all that, I remember that one night we all slept together in the living room. We didn't want the kids anywhere. We're all you know, we huddled together because if we have to leave, we're all leaving together and stuff. Um, and so the people in Philadelphia, being earthquake country, they, they knew what that was like. They had experienced that great earthquake. But, you know, it's pretty weird when you no longer feel safe and secure on, on terra firma. Terra firma is no longer firma. You know, it's like nothing's safe and secure. And every time there'd be an aftershock, probably in that earthquake in 17 AD, those people, they'd go running out of the city. I gotta get out of the city, get away from all these buildings, they're going to fall on us. And so what Jesus is saying, and it's a picture that they probably understood well, they would never have to go out anymore. They would be safe and secure and in a permanent place. That's what heaven's going to be like for you and I. This all speaks of safety, security, and permanence.
long story to get to that. (laughs) Then he says, I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. And I will write on him my new name. Listen, when you get something that you really like and you really value, you don't want anyone to mess with your property. You don't want to lose it. You don't want to make sure someone takes it. And then we were t- I was talking with Dan. You know, he's like missing all kinds of tools. If you have any of Dan's tools, can you bring them back? He's, he's looking for them. Flaring tool in particular we're talking about. But, you know, um, you want to make sure someone doesn't take it and then later on claim, hey, this is mine. What do you do? You put your name on it, right? Get something new, man. Write your name on it. You put your name on all your tools, Dan. I should <laughs> Jesus would write on the overcomer the name of the Father and the name of New Jerusalem. In other words, you are his. You belong there in New Jerusalem, and no one can mess with you. That's what that means. Jesus will also write on the overcomer his new name. And that, I think, is kind of interesting. Why do I think that's interesting? You know, (laughs) Teresa and I have names for each other. I won't share them. <laughs> but, you know, if I said this name that, I, you know, we call each other, it's not, you know, bad names, but, you know, it just, we call each other, we've got pet names or whatever. You know, if I shared that with you, it would mean nothing to you. You'd go, okay, big deal. But because her and I have history, we have a relationship, she, right away, she knows what I mean, I know what she means. You know, we, we, we have that understanding That name is unique to her and I based on our relationship. And this, this, you know, if you were to say Jesus is the Son of God, He's the Son of God, He's, for each of us, I pray that each of you here have a relationship with the Lord, you would say, yeah, I, I totally get that. Jesus is the Son of God. You might say, you know, Jesus is Lord of my life or my deliverer, my healer. And we would say, you know what? We understand what you're saying because we share that same relationship with the Lord. However, I think the Lord also means something unique to each one of us based on our own personal individual relationship with him. There's this, 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 this special relationship. You know, maybe he's brought you through something that, you know, nobody else has gone through. You alone have gone through something. Or, or he means just something special to you or, or how he has been in, involved in your life. There, there is something unique in your relationship with the Lord. And I think this name kind of be what that refers to. It, it's like you're going to recognize that. No one else might, but, but you're going to recognize that name of the Lord. And then finally, the admonition for the individual to heed what the Spirit says. Again, this is repeated through all the letters to all the churches. He who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. We have two ears, so we should hear twice as much, right? What's the, church, what's the Spirit saying to the church this morning? Do you have little strength this morning? Good. Good if you do. Good if you're weak. Good if you have to rely on the Lord for everything in your life because, you know, I, I just, I can't, I can't do anything. I'm, I'm stuck. I mean, help me, Lord. That's a good place. It's not a comfortable place, but it's a good place to be. Are you relying on the Lord, completely relying on him? That's good. Do you have a little strength? Awesome. Are you keeping God's word? That's great. Are you not denying his name and his nature? Awesome. Do you see the open door he has placed in front of you? 
Because he has placed open doors in front of each one of us. Are you walking through that door while it's open? Because sometimes those doors shut and that, and that opportunity slips away. Maybe you're not seeing an opportunity. Maybe you're not seeing a door. Pray, ask the Lord, Lord, show me that open door. I guarantee you he'll do that because he loves this world. He died for everyone in this world. He loves the lost. And he'll show you. He'll show you that open door. And then it's up to us if we're going to walk through that door. Or are we like Shebna? We're too engulfed in the cares of this life, enriching ourselves, and we're not being rich toward God. And I like what Paul says in Titus. He says, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. We're looking for that blessed hope. I'm not looking for the Antichrist. I'm not looking for the signs of the great tribulation. I'm looking for the return of Jesus Christ. And that's what I'm pegging, pinning, pinning my hope on, that secure peg that's not going to fall, It's not going to fail. Why don't you stand up let's go, Lord, in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. We thank you for your letter to the church in Philadelphia. And Lord, I pray that this letter, well, I know it applies to us, but I pray, Lord God, that you would consider this church and us as individuals, as those of the Church of Philadelphia. Lord, pray that, I pray that you would show us the open doors that you've set before us. And Lord, I, I thank you that you have open doors for us. And Lord, that we have that confidence that when you open a door, no one can shut it. Nothing can shut it, Lord. Only you can. And Lord, there's so many of us here this morning that we have little strength. Lord, we're so, we feel so powerless in our situations, so utterly helpless. Lord, I thank you that you are strong in our weaknesses, that, Lord, we can look to you and trust in you. And I thank you that one day, Lord God, we will be in your presence, as we sang earlier, seeing you face to face. And that, Lord, we will be there. We are yours. We'll belong in, the, in your city, Lord God. And no one will ever take us away. We'll never, we'll, we're permanent residents there, Lord, citizens of your kingdom. And I thank you for that. Lord, I pray for anyone here this morning that might be struggling in their relationship with you. Lord, maybe they're, they're going through a tough time. Lord, I pray that you would strengthen them. Lord, show them that, that Lord, you, be their strength, Lord God, I pray. Help them through their trial, Lord God. Lord, I thank you that you've promised to deliver all of us out of that great trial that's coming upon the whole world to test the world, Lord. I thank you for that. And Lord, may we be looking for, keeping our eyes on, and living our lives in accordance with that blessed hope of your return. We love you, Lord, and we thank you and bless you. In Jesus' name, amen.